welcome back to the Modern Indian Podcast. Um, I'm very excited about this particular podcast. It's very close to close to me. Um, I guess we. I want to start by talking a little bit about um, the basis of this podcast today and the guests we have today to talk about South Asian health. Um, so I have hypertension. I uh, my family has hypertension, and um, I remember going to my doctor and. Uh, she said to me, well, your maternal side has, has um, hypertension, your paternal side, everyone has it, so you kind of are already exposed to it, and you will have it, so you will have to take the medication for as long as it takes. And I remember feeling like, oh, but what if I make, can I make any changes? I don't, I'm 35, I don't want to have a med- medication for the rest of my life. And she said, no, but you have to. We cannot have you have this high, uh, you know, levels, and so you have to have medicine. And so I, was, I felt so discouraged. I'm like, well, there's nothing I can do, I guess. And I kept having the medication. <clears throat> and last year, I went to a different doctor. This time, uh, he was more, he knew a little bit more about South Asian. Generally, he had a lot of patients uh, from our culture. And uh, he said to me, you know, it's just because your family has it doesn't mean that you're going to have to live with this for the rest of your life. There's a bunch of th- things you can do. You can change your lifestyle, your diet there is a whole bunch of things we can do and let's aim to get rid of this medicine and this is the first time i heard someone say that this is not permanent and at that moment he said you know i would like you to read a book which i think every south asian should read and it's called the uh, south asians health uh, health solution south asian health solution and it's written by dr ronesh sinha and who's here in the bay area and uh, i think it'll be very helpful to someone like you and so then I, I, as what we do, we Googled, we, I found all the articles, I found the TED Talks, and uh, this was so interesting to me. <clears throat> then I thought that, then I spoke to Kritika, and I'm like, you know what, we really should have Dr. Ranesh Sinha on our podcast, talk about this issue, because our culture has a lot to do with our health, and nobody, like half of them don't know about it, and if they know, <clears throat> they don't know what to what to expect and how to actually go deeper and kind of find out why we're experiencing what we are. So hence, we have Dr. Ranesh Sinha on our uh, uh, on our podcast today. Welcome, Dr. Sinha. Thank you so much for joining in. It's wonderful to be here. Thank, thanks for sharing that personal story because um, it's always inspiring to hear that not only patients are finding the message, but doctors are sharing it too because I think doctors have been traditionally trained to sort of give lifestyle some emphasis, but really more medications. Yeah. And so it's great to hear that doctors are becoming more forward thinking. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And they, they also are, they're noticing that culture has a lot to do with absolutely. our health. So it's not yeah. just, you know, it's not generic, so to speak. Uh, so with that, I think I'm going to give the mic to Kritika. And I think you want to start some questions? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks again for listening in today. So, Dr. Sinha, before we jump in, would you like to take a second to introduce yourself and uh, tell our audience about yourself? Sure, yeah. So, I'm an internal medicine physician with a, a large group here called Palo Medical Foundation. We take care of a lot of the tech companies here in Silicon Valley. And I started my practice here in the Bay Area almost 20 years ago. And when I came here, you know, typically my background was, you know, your typical Indian doctor. And whenever people ask me, why did I go into medicine? You know, they expect me to say something like, because I wanted to help people. But it was more because my brother didn't go into it. I didn't have a choice. So (laughs) so I kind of fell into the career myself. And it's funny, I, I came to Silicon Valley. And, you know, in medical training, I was kind of taught that, 
conditions like heart disease happen in older white people that, you know, smoke and, you know, have alcohol and eat a lot of red meat. And in my clinic, which was next to a bunch of high-tech companies, I started seeing really young Asian Indian, particularly males at that point that were coming in with devastating conditions at a very early age in their 20s and 30s. And it just blew my mind. I was like, my God, I cannot believe that so many people are coming in with high blood pressure and diabetes at this age. And the frustrating thing about that point was I didn't have any resources to turn them to. Because if you look on Google at that point, there weren't really any specific resources to send them on. So I basically just stuck to general guidelines. I looked at the American Heart Association guidelines and I gave them food pyramids that did not adhere to the foods that they were eating, but I was just I was just helpless at that point. In the meantime, while I was giving this advice, I found in myself personally, I slowly developed prediabetes and metabolic syndrome, which are two conditions that I treat in the clinic now. And I was frustrated because I was following everything to the T. I was exercising five to seven days a week. And at that point, I kind of felt like a fraud. I'm like, I'm giving people advice that I'm taking, and I'm watching my health not being yeah. treated optimally as well. So then at that point, I decided that I need to do some deeper research and try to figure out some resources that are really tailored for our population. Right. So interestingly, I started going out to companies, and I was giving some lectures, and I was really self-experimenting a lot. So I'd look into research, and I'd try different things. And I realized, wow, our South Asian bodies are very different than other bodies out there. There's different impacts of the same types of foods that people are eating. So then I was kind of motivated to really create health education resources for our medical group. And that became very popular. And then long story short, it kind of evolved into really becoming passionate about doing research and writing a book. And then the first book I always thought I'd write was a book on wellness just for corporate employees, just because we're all stuck in our chairs and developing high stress. But then I realized that that would be sort of more of a generic message. But really, there's something about an Indian in particular, the ones that I saw in my clinic that came in from India, that are completely lost. They're torn between traditions from home, and now they're entering what's the American vision of health, and they're stuck in between. They really can't find their grounding. So I said, you know what, I'm going to focus this on South Asians. It's probably applicable to non-South Asians, too. But I need to sort of tailor a message that people can connect to from a cultural standpoint. So, so fast forward till now, and now I have a busy clinic where I'm basically seeing patients that have these conditions. And then really my full-time job is to go out to these high-tech companies and in a scalable way motivate their employees to really make healthy lifestyle changes where they sit and work. So, so it's been gratifying work. Well, now, yeah. imagine. That's an awesome <clears throat> yeah. work. Like That's yeah. great that you're doing all those things. One thing that I want to go deeper on sure. is you said that our bodies are different, um, like the South Asian bodies are different, and the fact that you were following conventional wisdom and yeah. you were doing everything, yet you still – develop certain medical concern, yeah. uh, issues, how are our bodies different? So one of the key things, you, you know, as you know from reading about nutrition and health, it's so confusing, right? I mean, you're always seeing new studies and news headlines about what's right and what's not right. But one of the things that I was consistently seeing is in the majority of my Indian patients that came in, they had some sort of issue related to glucose or their cholesterol, particularly triglycerides. And these are lab markers that show that their body is having problem with a hormone called insulin. So insulin is really what helps. Insulin is essential hormone. We wouldn't survive without it. What insulin does, is it not only brings our blood sugar down, but it helps to traffic nutrients to different sites in our body. And the problem is, is when we say that we become insulin resistant, so the real core condition for most Indians is a condition called insulin resistance. That's when our body, our muscles in particular, become resistant to the effects of that hormone. And when that happens, all types of abnormalities ensue. It can be high blood pressure, but more typically it's high blood sugar, diabetes, high triglycerides, fatty liver, whole list of conditions. The whole world is suffering from insulin resistance. 
But for Indians, our threshold for developing insulin resistance is very low. It takes very little excess body fat for that to happen. It takes very little carbohydrate consumption for that to happen. So a lot of examples I give in lectures is, you know, I can be sitting here having lunch with, let's say, my European friend um, who has a completely genetic and cultural background. We can eat the exact same amount of carbohydrates, for example, and that'll have a totally different impact on his body. His carbohydrates might go more to his muscle. Mine are going to go more to my fat cells and my liver to produce triglycerides. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the issue. Like, we might develop the same issues, but the threshold points are much lower for South Asians. You know, so you look puzzled, and you're like, why yeah. the heck is yeah. it yeah. screwed, yeah. right? We're literally genetically screwed with this. And, and, the, and the reason for that is if you look at, and a lot of this is theoretical, but some of it is founded in science, is because we did develop this, because we lived, our ancestors lived in an intense feast-famine society, we had to develop the ability to whenever we found a meal, our body needs to be able to store that adequately in our fat cells and our liver for energy. Because when we face a drought or a famine situation, we need to be able to access those calories so we can survive through that right. period. So I literally, in talks, I tell people that we have extra Tupperware storage containers around our belly and inside our liver to store energy. And then when we're faced with famine situations, we can access and burn that for energy. But the problem right now is we don't have famine situations at all. In the wintertime, we feast even more. Diwali season, I mean, mm -hmm. right now, I kind of joke, it's what, it's February. Yeah. It's March right now. And typically, I see after the winter, Jan, Feb, everybody's numbers go haywire because yeah. they're taking advantage of all the Western holidays, Halloween, Thanksgiving, plus Diwali, and their numbers go crazy. Their body can't handle that amount of carbohydrates, but they still have that evolutionary capacity to store it, but we're just not burning it. We're not going through periods of famine to sort of counteract that. So that's that's the problem. And you, you know, every probably population has a little bit of that tendency, but we have, uh, so literally they call this the thrifty gene. So the thrifty gene means that we can survive, and it's not the desi gene. I know, I know, you guys are both smiling. So it's a different type of thrifty gene. So we tend to be thriftier than juice, as we say, yeah. with our calories where we kind of store away for a rainy day. But And that's the thing is we don't spend it, though. We just keep storing and storing and storing without spending those calories. So wow. that's kind of at do a high you, level what's happening. Do you think yeah. any of it is um, having to do with a lot, a lot of India is vegetarian? Right. So, so that, that is a big part of it because, um, you know, so one of the key messages I give is, is Indian vegetarians aren't vegetarians or granitarians. You know, whenever I see Indians in my clinic, the first question I ask them is the, the, the exact question that you asked is, are you vegetarian or non-vegetarian? And if they are vegetarian, you know, either way, I start doing a dietary intake. And I've been doing this for over 10 years. And most of my Indians eat very small servings of overcooked vegetables. So they're truly not eating like a Western vegetarian diet. Mm -hmm. And you're right. That's one of the central issues that kind of I <clears throat> highlighted before when I did this work was many of these people coming in with rampant diabetes and early heart disease. They were vegetarians. I'm like, my God, they're not smoking. They're not even exposed to saturated fat or red meat. What's happening? But then when I sort of made the link with this intense insulin resistance, I realized that much of their heart disease, diabetes is being fueled by excessive carbohydrates coming from that Indian grainitarian mm -hmm. diet is what I call it rather than vegetarian. So I do want Indians to start eating more like true vegetarians. And really our traditional ancestors did. Like, you mm -hmm. know, I'm from Calcutta, so I remember, you know, when I'd go back every summer to Calcutta, there'd be such a diversity of different types of village vegetables we'd eat in the context of having those grains. I'm not anti-grain, but but it was a good mixture of all of that. But nowadays I think we're so busy that people don't even take the time to make those foods. It's so easy to just throw some chapatis at your kid when they're hungry or, you know, a doll. You can make it in bulk in a pressure cooker. And, you know, it's just easier to do that. But unfortunately, those are just 
loaded carbohydrates without the nutrients that you need to combat all these conditions that we're talking about. So, yeah. yeah. We actually recently went to India like two, three weeks ago. And yeah. that was something we talked about was um, I worked with a nutritionist all of last year because I had developed certain health issues that I wanted to yeah. tackle. And working with that nutritionist, I learned a lot about eating more protein, cutting down on carbs, right. all these things. Yeah. And, I'm a granitarian. <laughs> right. I was. I well, was. All granitarians exactly. I was. So. And so I cut down my dependency on that, yeah. right? I really, I even cut down dairy. I learned and figured out that, okay, there are definitely certain foods that cause inflammation, that cause right. bloating, and I shouldn't be having those. Exactly. But having that conversation in India was one of the most difficult things I had to do during this vacation mm. because people just would not understand. When I would say, hey, you know what? I can't eat dal and chawal and roti yeah. and cooked vegetable. This is just too much. That's an like, insult. Do you like offend people yes. when you don't eat their food? Yes, right? and they're so, like, yeah. I don't understand. Like, why yeah. wouldn't you eat this? You don't eat enough. And it's like, <laughs> no, no, no. This is, this is so much carbs. Yeah. So what I wonder is where do you even start to educate a population that is so ingrained as this, like, cultural narrative of a – believing that this is the food, this is the right food, this is the food the entire world should be eating because it's the best food and it's the healthiest food. Yeah, and you know, you, you bring up a core point. It is such an emotional thing. I always give this story, being Bengali, when I go to India, obviously Bengalis are known for eating sweets. And some of my aunts, especially the ones above age 70, if I didn't eat it, I still remember when I was 10 years old, one of my aunts broke down and cried because I wouldn't <laughs> eat the sweets. I just didn't like the sweets. They were too sweet for me. But but I realized at that point that it's like an insult. It's like a yeah. slap on the face when you're mm -hmm. not eating those mm -hmm. foods. And I, and I think, you know, in the beginning when I started doing this work, I was probably a little bit more combative and confrontational. We're like, what are you doing, you know? But now I think I've had to acknowledge and, and do some Indian bargaining where I acknowledge the fact that we have amazing foods. I mean, if you look at a lot of the modern dietary movements, the paleo movement, keto, whatever, I mean, people are eating he and coconut oil and turmeric's like in the headlines all the time. So I want people to focus on the fact that intrinsically, we have an incredible dietary system with amazing anti-inflammatory spices and flavors. We just have to sort of ration the amounts in the proper balance to really get the most benefit from that. And when I do get hardcore Indians that sort of come see me, and they might be sort of second, third generation, they tell me, yeah, well, my grandma used to eat like this. I have to reflect back and remind them, what was your grandmother's life like from morning till night? It's very different than you sitting in a car to get to work where you're sitting all day. So unless you're going to adopt grandma's life, you know, quit your Silicon Valley day job and do what she was doing yeah. and meditating and praying and all that, we can't consume the same amount of nutrients. So you have to find that balance. The other thing I sort of remind folks is right now, unfortunately, when I see patients, most of them already have an established condition. They might have diabetes or early heart disease. So now we have to do a much more stringent dietary intervention. So I don't tell them that forever you're going to have to give up rice and chapatis. But right now, we have to do some drastic things to reset your body. Right. And that might involve going under a program that's going to help us shed that extra fat and awaken your muscles so it takes those nutrients back in. Right. But guess what? The good news is once we get there, your body becomes more flexible, which it wasn't before. Like you bring up digestive issues. And a lot of women, they have tons of bloating. You know, it's a yeah. very common thing. And they're like, anything I put in my body is causing me to bloat and get gas and all this stuff. But I tell them right now, your body's so sensitive that we have to eliminate a lot of different foods. But then when we rebuild and heal your body through diet, exercise, stress, and sleep, you might be able to actually handle gluten eventually or some amount of carbs. So, so if they know that there's some light at the end of the tunnel, we're not just going to put them on a Western Mediterranean diet or something mm -hmm. like that. I think you can work with them. But having said that, like I feel like I've got more leverage points here in the U.S. When I talk to clients or people that reach out through India, 
I know they're stuck. In the big mm-hmm. cities, I think movements are happening in shifts, but there are a lot of you know families where those generational traditions are tough. And, and my heart goes out because I've seen my cousins, for example. Like, it's funny. When I went to the, an Indian wedding two years ago, we took a family picture, and there was pictures of, like, our grandparents, my aunts, and then their kids. And within one generation, you can see, like, 30 to 40-pound weight gains. And literally, the kids of my Masis, you know, they looked older than, you know, their parents. Hopefully, they're not going to be hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> But really, you, you always see those changes, yeah. and it's, it, it, it's, it's alarming. So I think it's going to be some slow changes in the depths of India. But, but you know, you start with people that can share a positive example. You start with medical providers. And mm-hmm. dietitians, I think, are doing great work. They're all over this, and a lot of them are really trying to get the word across. So, yeah. Absolutely. And what are two pieces of conventional wisdom uh, yeah. about nutrition that are really detrimental to one's health that you see constantly come up with your in- yeah. Indian patients? So with the nutrition, first of all, I, I think we highlighted the first, is mm-hmm. this concept of the Indian vegetarian diet sort of being the healthy way to go. And again, I'm not opposed to vegetarian diets, but we just have to do that in the right way. The second one is, and this is what I talk about a lot in the book, and I think there's been a lot more highlighted recently, but it's just making the linkage that heart disease and cholesterol issues are mainly due to dietary fat. So a lot of our folks that are even very motivated, they find that they're just cutting back more and more on fat. Like, okay, I'm not going to do full fat milk, no more ghee, no oils, no, mm-hmm. no oils at all. And they're just eating a lot of dry carbohydrates as a result of that. So, and it's very tough because it's an emotional connection. If you look at it at a picture of a heart attack plaque, it's very greasy and oily. Cholesterol is one of the things that actually makes up the plaque. But the connection that people don't understand is the root cause of that plaque came from a process called inflammation. Inflammation is currently driven by stress, lifestyle, mm-hmm. and excessive carbohydrates and sugar in the diet. So getting them to really remove that visceral reaction, because the thing is when they remove healthy fats from their diet, you brought up the word inflammation, you're not able to calm inflammation down in a healthy way. So I think those are two core ones. There's others, but I think those are the two foundational myths that yeah. face. Yeah. Do you think historically some shift happened at some point in our culture? Because I feel like a lot of principles in yoga talk about picking the healthy elements of the Indian diet and yeah. incorporating it into your lifestyle. And then also meditation and pranayam and doing these yeah. exercises yeah. that are really key. And I feel like now... People in India don't do yoga, but people here do yoga. Oh my God, so that exercise it. element is completely out of it, and it's they're so still keeping that. that diet. You know, even it. though my practice is called the South Asian Consul Practice, I see people of all different ethnic backgrounds. So one of my key questions is around stress. And I've been doing this for many years, and I will tell you that vastly more non-Indians are meditating and doing yoga than Indians. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say in a typical week, when I ask Indians this question, I mean, over 90 to 95% are doing no meditation or yoga at all. It's sad. I mean, I, I kind of feel like, what the heck, man? This came from our country. What's going on <laughs> yeah. here, right? But it's sad, you know, that we're not. So you're absolutely right. There's been a major um, evolutionary um, shift. And, you know, if you look back at it, I think part of it is because I feel like Indians, including my relatives are in the big cities, they feel this rampant pressure to over-westernize as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Let's be, you know, a lot of them that are bringing kids here, I see this with my, um, you know, families that have come over from India. They want their kids to just adopt Western lifestyles. Let's be popular. Let's pick up sports mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And it, it's kind of interesting because my kids, because they were born and raised here, often we feel a little bit disconnected from Indian culture. So from a young age, we had them, like, reading the Mahabharata and, you know, doing all these cultural things. And when we go back to India, they're like, how'd they know that stuff? You know, because <laughs> my own kids don't even know this stuff. So you're right. I think there's been 
an overcorrection. I'm not opposed to Westernization, but I feel like it's gone in the other direction where, yeah. you know, we're not even passing on the traditions that can promote health in the future. So Absolutely. And this is something we did an event recently where we met with a lot of young um, Indian Americans living in the Bay Area. And this was something that came up over and over again, where it's almost as if we've defined our own meaning of being Indian now, because yeah. it's the same thing. You don't, relate to the people in India because they're being overly westernized and they're just looking at what you see in media and they're adapting that into their lifestyle, right? right? And you don't really connect to the first generation of Indians that came here because you you have been more exposed to the American culture. So it's like redefining where you fit in and it seems to be a major cause of stress because people mm. are having identity issues and they yeah. don't know where they belong. Yeah. I definitely yeah. sense that a lot in the play. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, in particular, do you have any specific advice for Indian women when it comes to health and fitness and lifestyle? Marry the right man. I mean, hundred percent on the same page as you. We agree on that one. So, so here's the situation. Actually speaking of men too. So I take care of a lot of families and couples. So the first thing is, if you, you know, ideally, you and your spouse will focus and prioritize health together. But one message I give off the bat is, do not have the same expectations for the goals that you're trying to achieve. Like, and for example, the number one goal that all the women set are, I need to lose 20 pounds, I need to lose body fat. So, so great, you and your husband are on some sort of lifestyle plan. Already expect it's an unfair world, but he's going to lose more weight than you are. So, so, so I think from the very beginning, you want to set a proper goal that is not fixated on body weight and body fat because that's when the vicious cycle of failure, self-hate starts. And for a woman's body, and believe me, I'm, I was raised in a household where my dad wanted me to meditate. I didn't really meditate early on. I didn't buy the whole stress connection really early on. I was kind of a skeptical scientist. But now that I've been doing this for years, it's incredible how much, how fat-storing chronic stress is for a woman's body, even more than a man's body. So now, if women already start off and they come in, and I, told, I tell women, I'm not a weight loss doctor. Um, I'm here to make you healthier and make you feel better. So pick goals that are not obsessed with that, because if you already set a goal that you're not going to reach, that's going to generate so much chronic stress. I've had women break down in tears saying, you know what, I'm doing intermittent fasting. I'm doing boot camp seven days a week, and I lost three pounds, or I gained weight from doing that. And it's incredible. I mean, it just causes so much emotional disturbances. And that chronic cortisol release will just prevent your fat cells from unlocking fat altogether. So for many of my women, I actually had them eat more food and exercise less in a balanced way. So their body and emotions felt comforted. And then they were actually able to shed weight. It sounds totally counterintuitive. If you told me this 10 to 15 years ago, I think I was crazy. But it really is. And one analogy I give them is as much as they're here, and many of them read my book, and they're like, they're counting calories, they're counting carbs. Often one question I ask them is, when you go to India and you're not counting carbs, how do you do? And many of them actually lose weight when they go to India. Because now, guess what? They're around their family. They're in their community. They're sort of in their native soil. Their stress levels come down. In some cases, it might go up depending on family dynamics. But a lot of times, they go here, they're not counting calories, and they lose weight. And I'm like, that's cortisol. That's you connected to community. And that has an impact on how your body stores calories. So so that'd be, I know I went into a lot of detail there, but if you don't set that initial goal properly from the beginning, I've seen women suffer for years. And it's just, it's just terrible. And what happens is then they develop nutrient deficiencies because they're dieting so hard. And they develop conditions like 
Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is a very common thyroid condition and underactive thyroid. A lot of Indian women have this. Um, their metabolism slows down, and they try to diet more and more. That condition gets worse. So, you know, the body, and why is this? So simple some people ask me, why is it such an unfair world? And again, I always look at evolutionarily. So if you look at a woman's body, under periods of stress, the woman's body is metabolically designed to store calories and fat for breastfeeding, birth, etc. And the body is designed for that. So when you throw the same amount of stress on a man and a woman, a woman's body is going to respond very differently. In men, interestingly, we may not necessarily gain as much body fat, but we have a lot of inflammation at the blood vessel level. So that's why even though I might see husbands and wives and the wives may be 30 pounds heavier, often the husband has a heart attack at 35 and they're eating like the same diet. So I tell men they're not out of the woods. I and mean, if anything, their risks are much higher. As women enter menopause, though, now those risks sort of, start, sort of get aligned in terms of heart disease and things. So, so women have to understand that their bodies are different. Their goals need to be much more nurturing and comforting and realistic, especially a woman that's in the middle of, okay, I just had kids. And if a woman comes in saying, I have kids, I'm working in Silicon Valley, I'm like, we need to realistically goal set right now. I even joke with my wife. I was like, you're not going to fit into those jeans until our kids go to college. Just accept that right now. <laughs> Let's just be gentle and just try to you know, focus on balance right now. So, everything, so I think that's key. That everything so you just said <laughs> is so on point because this is exactly what I went through. I spent, yeah. I think, the last year of my life correcting a lot of these things. Yeah. Um, I developed Hashimoto's. I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's yeah. when I was 22. I just left college and... It was middle of the economic recession. Oh, geez, yeah. And so I was extremely stressed out. I was like, okay, where's, what's my next path? What am I doing? Yeah. Um, you know, I need to figure out my career. And during that time, yeah. I just felt exhausted all the time. Yeah. And I had no idea why. And then they were like, okay, you have an underactive thyroid condition. And right. so I was like, okay, fine. And put me on the medication for it. And every time I asked, is there a solution? Like, you keep telling me I just have to take this medication. There for the has rest of your life. To, for the rest of my oh, life. Yeah. And I was like, but there has to be a different solution, right? right? right. And there was never, nobody ever gave me a different solution. Yeah. But now here I am, um, I'm 30, and I was like, okay, this can't go on. Like, you yeah. cannot just accept that I just have to take this medication. Sure. Yeah. So I got on that path, and this is what I was told. Before that, I was exercising way too much. I was doing kickboxing five days a week. I was right. running. I was walking. I was doing too much exercise. I, I feel was, like we rehearsed this ahead of time, right? So this yeah. is exactly right. This is exactly what you said, and that's why I relate, so yeah. deeply relate yeah. to it. And I was only eating yeah. 1,200 calories. Right, right. So I was very uh, nutrient uh, deficient. deficient. Yes, yeah. yeah. And uh, my nutritionist was like, no, you're going to eat more, yeah. and you're – going to stop working out. Yeah, like, I just yeah. want you to go walking every day. And exactly. that's it. And I saw drastic changes yeah. Imagine, within yeah. a year. So right. deeply, deeply right, related right. to everything you're yeah. saying. Right. Well, that's, that's good for audience listening. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But the one thing that I think for Indian women, it's particularly hard. And this is something that another thing that we felt in India was there's this obsession with wanting to be thin, like cultural mm. obsession with mm. wanting to be thin. Your in-laws are telling you you're fat. Your parents are telling you you're fat. Your kids are telling you you're fat. Society's huh. telling you you're fat. And yeah. you're constantly being told this. And it's unrealistic for Indian women to want to be a size zero. Yeah, Our bodies are not built that way. But point. culturally, yeah. nobody understands that. And yeah. you get put down yeah. often yeah. for gaining even the slightest amount of weight. 
So can I ask you something? Yeah. That's interesting because when I was in India, when I first wrote the book and I'd make trips to India to sort of interview people, and this might be more region specific, but more of the criticism was around like if you're too skinny or like round was better, especially for maybe that's mm-hmm. more for kids. But are you guys experiencing now that there's a lot of fat shaming now? Yes. Oh, yes. oh extreme. Oh, really? yeah. I mean, I saw these kids fighting and arguing yeah. Yeah. and the biggest insult they could give to each other was you're fat. Mm. Yeah. And they would just go back and forth yeah. and call each other fat. And they would call oh, their yeah. moms fat. Like, oh, I'm worried you're fat. Yeah. And it's, these women are not fat. Yeah. 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 And I'm looking at them. I'm like, they're not fat, but yeah. you feel the sense all the time. I feel this pressure every time I go to India yeah. Yeah. is everybody's like, Oh, what are you eating? Like yeah. kind of circling around the conversation of yeah. you must be really unhealthy. Right. And I was like, I'm actually and much healthier. I wonder you. how much of this parallel, cause when I was young, I remember what the beautiful Bollywood actresses were considered mm-hmm. right. and they were round around the hips Absolutely. and they were more curvaceous, mm-hmm. yeah. but now they're modeled completely after Western. And, yeah. and you know, yeah. I, I feel like, that caused an abrupt shift in terms and of it's more in and... India than it is here. Uh, like right. I'm noticing that uh, it, when we go to India, then yeah. it's it's twice as much as people who are our family here. Yeah. And, and my Indian it's... relatives have no filter. Like they'll tell <laughs> oh, me, no. like, they're like, are you not... involved? Or like it's like complete. Even before, <laughs> no. like I haven't seen you in ten years. Like that's, a, that's yeah, like the that's, first thing they yeah. tell you, right? Absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah, oh my gosh, absolutely. We have the same thing. That's yeah, the my confidence thing. level goes way down by the time <laughs> I'm ready to go back. I'm like, all right, thanks, <laughs> thanks. for the brutal honesty. I'm, <laughs> I'm all set now. The other question in relations to women and weight gain is. Indian women going through pregnancy. Mm, I feel like from a cultural standpoint, that is also a very tricky place to be because uh, I don't have kids. I have not gone through that experience. But from what I see is everybody's so focused on the health of the child that they don't necessarily make the right decisions for the health of the mother. Yes. For instance, one of the things is this um, gond ke ladu, right? Oh, my God. And I hear so many women, they're like, oh, I have to eat this. I have to eat this. And then finally, I Googled it. I was like, what is this thing? I looked it up. And one ladu has, what, like 750 calories? Yeah. And you're supposed to eat two on top of your regular diet? Yeah. Yeah. That's That's ridiculous. But how do you you have that conversation where culturally they're like, no, this is what you're supposed to do? Yeah. I had that. I have two kids. And both times my mother from India would come in and she had this box of gonkiladus that she made oh, yeah. and I was made to eat it yeah. every time and she's like oh no this is going to make you healthier from the inside it'll give you strength and I I did it because it yeah. was like oh your mom is telling you so true, probably true. it's true yeah so she obviously went through it and I still haven't been able to get rid of that right I, what I gained yeah. at that time because yeah. it's so difficult and it's incredible and yeah. I looked at the ingredients it's all fat and carbs yeah. there is nothing really like yeah. nuts are great for you yeah. but in quant like less quantities mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i'm not supposed to eat like a full laddu full filled with that right. and and the the one thing that i notice is that it's so hard to say no to your parents and in-laws because the one thing you they, you'll get back is mm-hmm. we know better than you because yeah. we had two kids and yep. so how so, do you deal so with this, the family this is so i feel like Pregnancy is our opportunity to really eradicate this problem from the root because not only does it affect the, the mom's health, but it has a direct genetic imprint on the fetus's chance of developing diabetes and heart disease later on. So that's why I have a dedicated chapter on pregnancy because what happens is because of these myths, what's happening in a woman's pregnant body is if she's eating excessive amounts of sugars and carbohydrates, her body's producing large amounts of insulin. 
And that insulin isn't just exposed to her body, it's exposed to the fetus as well too. And one of the things insulin does is it makes us store more belly fat and it kind of keeps your arms and legs sort of thin. So when you actually look at studies of South Asian babies, they typically, they typically have that body habitus. If you were to look at a Hispanic baby that developed diabetes, they tend to be very fat sort of all the way around. Right. Indian babies tend to have a little bit of a pot belly, a lot of the fats in their liver, mm -hmm. and their arms and legs are very slender. It's almost foreshadowing the body type they're going to develop as an adult. Right. And a lot of that is driven by excessive carbohydrate consumption. So it, it's a major issue. And, you know, when relatives come in, this is very tough. In-laws come in, they bring this to you. But I've had these discussions with families and grandparents in the room, and I tell them, listen, I mean, we have the highest rates of gestation, almost one of the highest rates of gestational diabetes, diabetes pregnancy in the world. And I actually um, did a pregnancy panel with a colleague of mine who's out in Fremont here, and she'd been anecdotally tracking her numbers, and she said about 50% of her Indian women have gestational diabetes. That's ridiculous. That One is, in two yeah. women have diabetes in pregnancy. And what does that mean for mom? That means her risk of developing diabetes after pregnancy is significantly higher mm -hmm. in addition to heart disease. The risk of her baby developing diabetes and heart disease is actually higher. Mm -hmm. So this is a one time. There's a lot of things I give into, too. I don't like to fight with family. But I tell women that, guess what? Now you're responsible for another life inside you. And this is a time to stand up to your mother or your mom or, you know, or do something where, you know, take the lead, maybe have part of it. But, but, but the other problem why, it's not just diet, but the other myth we have, too, is just rest. Oh, right? yes, definitely. Don't move. Definitely. You know, I'll Absolutely. get everything. Like 40 then, days. Yeah, and it's funny because our Western patients, it's the opposite because they're still training for half marathons in their third trimester. So they kind of <laughs> go the other way. But, but there are definitely some middle ground. But if you combine being inactive, like our family encourages, plus you're throwing lead dues in their mouth, you know, when it's wide open, <laughs> it's, just, it's like a recipe for that. So, so this is where it's going to cause, just like any other big change, it's going to cause generational friction. But for, the, but for the sake of our kids and future generations, we just have to overcome that. And most of our relatives are, I mean, you can present some signs or you can tell them that my doctor said strictly that I can't, given this, you know, this risk can happen. You do your best. But I know some of the relatives out there, it's so ingrained that they're not going to listen. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's really hard. I, um, I always tell Sherpa this. I'm like, when I do decide to have kids, my mom and my mother-in-law don't have a say. <laughs> I'm, like, right, right. I'm like, I have a nutritionist. I have a physical trainer. Yes, I'm like, exactly right. I, I have my friend because yeah. that's like my mom complains all the time she's like oh you know I never lost this belly fat after yeah. I had you I'm yeah. 30 years old now so right. it's yeah. been a yeah. while and I see this across all the women in India oh, yeah. Yeah. they just never go back to their, their body because yeah. after their pregnancy yeah. so clearly some the decisions they're making are yeah. not beneficial right yeah. exactly mm -hmm. and you're right the reason for that is because their body has generated so much of that insulin hormone their bodies become more insulin resistant. So after the pregnancy, they still have that residual, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And some of this also foreshadows, you know, again, we don't want to cast blame on our parents. They didn't know mm -hmm. all of this. But but also, what sort of pregnancy did your mom had while she was pregnant, too? That has an influence on what sort of body habits you're going to develop, what sorts of abilities your body is going to have to burn fat. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the issues that our women face, and, you know, as much as... I'm an optimist, and I tell people, like you said in the beginning, if your family members have diabetes, we can absolutely reverse it. You know, not in all cases, but we can do that. But for women, I'm a little bit careful about their body goals. So I'll give you an example. The dietitian that works in my clinic, she weighs 100 pounds. So whenever people see her, and she's been like that her whole life, they're like, I want to eat exactly what you eat. Or, you know, or you might have somebody famous write a book, a Bollywood actress, about follow this plan. 
And I just remind women that, yeah, that's fine if the plan is balanced, but don't expect that you're going to look like her because she's been like that her whole life. Mm -hmm. Genetically, we have boundaries in terms of how much body fat we can lose, how we can reshape our bodies and things. And, and again, that comes back to sort of realistic goal setting. How can I sort of do the best that I can with these sort of genetic boundaries and sort of optimize for health, but not trying to become like somebody else who has a completely different gene pool and history behind that. You know, we can't sit there regretting our ancestors and history for that. We just yeah. have to do the best with what we have. Yeah. So, yeah. so obviously culture is a huge obstacle to yeah. adapting that healthy lifestyle, but is there any other obstacle that you consistently see across South Asian patients? Yeah. So I'll tell you, when I look at my South Asian patients, I put them into two categories here. So one of them is the ones that really don't have much motivation towards health. They want to eat their typical Indian diet. They're never going to exercise. So mm -hmm. it's the it's the low motivation types. And in that case, a lot of it is because they were raised in a culture where exercise and diet were not encouraged. The only thing that's encouraged is me to get straight A's and become a doctor and engineer yes. or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, those early messages still resonate when you're older. Like people still can't imagine because really, I'm, for me, on a daily basis, I'm like fighting with my calendar to figure out when can I get my workout in? Like, when can I fit this in? It's not an easy thing. And unless it's ingrained from an early age, it's very hard to develop that later on. So it's really having the discussion around how do you prioritize for health and really convincing them that when they do prioritize for health, they are actually going to be more productive. Every one of my patients that's been able to reverse diabetes or do better or lose weight, they don't look back thinking, God, what a waste of time. They're like, oh, my God, I can rem remember things. I can think more clearly now. You do become more productive, so you're not trading one for the other. But it's really working with that group to reprioritize things so they can bring wellness into their lives in some way. So that's one category. The other category is what you'd sort of described is my over-motivated patients, you know, especially women that are doing everything possible to lose weight, you know, raise their kids properly, do great at work, and just do everything perfectly. And then that's causing a lot of health issues and emotional issues. So with that population, we have to do some very realistic goal setting and sort of really prioritize things and try to bring back more balance and rest and sleep and stress reduction. So so I know I kind of fragmented it, but I have kind of two different approaches mm -hmm. with both sides because it is very different. So, Absolutely, yeah. 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 This goes back to your blog that you wrote about perfection and chasing perfection, which oh, then leads to stress. Oh, you went back that far. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just felt like I was reading it about me. I was yeah. like, oh, no, oh, no. he's describing me. I, I remember no, she said that. All she's like, us, it feels yeah. like this is on point. Like, this is me yeah. reading my own yeah, story. It but it's well, like, I think all of us have that strong. And I think it comes back. And that's why I'm really cautious with the way I'm raising my kids. Because I get strings of it sometimes. Like, oh, my God. There's me, you know, there, there's yeah. the, the me raised by my, I have to sort of scale back. Uh, you know, I, I never, so my wife and I now give some talks at high schools and, and we, we give the message, we don't want to demotivate people. I mean, we're so proud of what Indians have accomplished. I mean, it's incredible what we've been able to do. Um, but at the same time, we have to teach our kids and ourselves that it's okay to sit and daydream have time off to sort of just rest and not be insanely productive all the time. Right. And, and one example that, that I've given that sort of resonates is, uh, you know, I've talked about this one family. I've had a few families like this, but I will often see um, parents, and God bless Indian parents because they want to be part of our lives at every stage. And I remember seeing these parents that came in with a young couple, and the husband had had a heart attack like at 32. And, and the parents were like, you know what, after the first year, he made some good changes, but now he's joined a startup and I feel like he's back to where he was. So the baseline message was like, we just can't get him to slow down. Right. The wife was saying that parents were going to say that. So we kind of had a heart to heart and we realized, and you know, I wasn't pointing fingers, but I'm like, 
That's because from an early age, he was taught to never slow down, right? And now the parents realize it. They're like, oh, we just want him to rest and do this. But sometimes the train is left, right? Mm -hmm. So so when I look at my kids, luckily they don't have that problem. (laughs) If anything, I do have to push them a little bit. Um, But I do acknowledge and appreciate the fact that they're not like that. But some of their friends, it's like, they're running 24-7. They're in high school going nuts right now. And the parents are very proud of that. And, and great, he's motivated. But, like, at the same time, they have to teach him how to, like, put boundaries on. Because otherwise, that, that train's going to keep going and going and going until something burns out in the end. So, I cannot yeah. tell you how. Yeah. And this is close to me because yeah. I, I have two kids. And sure. what um, ages? Uh, my daughter is, uh, she's 11. Oh, and yeah. my son is 9. And what you said about them being motivated and then being told that, you know, you need to achieve something. Yeah. It's so close to, because my daughter is really self-motivated and yeah. she wants to achieve. She wants to, you know, get better grades and all yeah. that. And she's just in fifth grade, Yeah, but she goes to a school. So I live in a very, um, a suburban, uh, community, which is yeah. all Indian. Oh yeah. And so the school is really highly rated sure. because it's all Indian. Yes, yes. And so she comes back from school. And the first thing she said is that she was crying one day because yeah. she said that, mommy, I got so much homework. I get a lot of tests and he keeps, you know, making us work harder and harder and it's yeah. getting harder for her to keep up her grades. Yeah. So I one day told her, I'm like, you know, it's great. I so appreciate the fact that you are so self-motivated, yeah. but when you are working for a company, nobody is going to come and ask you what was your grade in fifth grade, third right, trimester. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so this was only to kind of pull her back a little bit. I was yeah. just telling her it's great that you want to learn yeah. everything, but grades are not the definition of how smart you are. Yeah. You're an outlier parent. Exactly. That, right? and, <laughs> so, and, yeah. and so, and because yeah. we, I feel like as a parent, because I see, I come, I came here after marriage. Yeah. So I saw the difference between how I was raised back in India yeah. and then how my friends, kids were being raised here in us and yeah. in Canada. So I see the difference in their mindset. They're more creative. Sure. They want to do more yeah. different things. Yeah. And they're not like, in a herd that I need to get better grades, get to an engineering college right. or a doctor or, yeah. you know, one of those professions, which we think are the best. Yeah. So I guess my question for you was that because the times are changing so fast and yeah. we as we lived in India, so we have a different mindset. Sure. Our parents are different. How would you say is good for parents to like, how, what would be your suggestion to parents when yeah. they're raising an Indian kid in America? So I think it comes back, it's kind of similar to how I approach patients. If you look at your kid, you have to know at that time and stage of his life or her life, what is your intrinsic motivation level already? And so it comes back to the two categories where we have some kids that are so super motivated that you can't slow them down. And you encourage them, you go, this is great, but you know what? You need some time to rest. You need some time to just go out you know, have play dates, whatever. So you want to sort of bring the edges around that and make sure you teach them that skill. For the ones that may not be motivated, then, you know, you find positive ways to motivate them. But we we do a lot of very, you know, even when we're in our best intentions, there's a lot of subtle messages we send to kids that can really devastate them later on. We have to be really careful of that. One of them is sibling comparisons or comparing to other people. Like, why can't you be more like Rajiv who's doing this and this? Why can't you be more like this and this? And it's funny because I do a lot of mental health talks. And when I talk to therapists, they tell me that 
that, that was a core part of why this person didn't feel confident because they were compared to their sister or their brother throughout their lives. So, so we have to be aware of those types of messages that we do. Um, and, and it's hard because we weren't raised with parents that have a huge emotional IQ. That for them, it was putting a roof over our heads, giving yeah. us a proper education. So I'm learning this for the first time too. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I need to sort of, you know, settle around that. But, but it's, it's, it's to have those opportunities to really have emotional conversations with kids. One of the key tendency in men and women that's linked to a lot of disease emotionally and heart disease wise is um, emotional suppression, internalization. So, so this is one thing I talk about a lot is this ability of how we just sort of, we go through suffering, but we keep it inside. And even when we socialize with other friends and family, what do we talk about? Where'd your kid go to college? What activity they're doing, right? It's very status-based social events, but we hardly ever sort of open up. So, so when I gave a talk this past week and I talked about the fact that I went to the Super Bowl a couple of weeks ago, and then after the Super Bowl, me and a bunch of guys were sitting and having brunch, talking about the usual things. And then I just openly said, you know what? How are things with everyone's family? Because I'm having some struggles with this one relative. And all of a sudden, everyone opened up. And it was, it was amazing, because I don't think Indian guys have gotten together like that, at least that group, and just shared stuff like that. But we don't do that, you know? And so how do you teach kids to do that? So one thing my wife and I do with our boys, because they're natural internalizers, boys just tend to be like that, is we do the roses and thorns exercise where we sit around the table at least a few times a week. I'll unload on, oh my gosh, this happened, that happened. So I'll share some thorns and then I'll throw in a rose. And then the boys will actually, it's nice because they'll kind of you know, relate to things that happen with their teachers or friends. And I feel like because we're oversharing so much, they, they feel very comfortable bringing that up. We have to sort of teach kids to have those skills because, you know, I, I tell people that the quiet ones that comply, those are the ones that we worry about the most. When you hear about, especially in some of these areas where we've seen high suicide rates, it's often the very quiet, shy, compliant ones where the parents are like, he did everything by the book. I'm like, that's, mm -hmm. that's a problem that he did everything by the book because they were trying so hard to meet those expectations that you set for them. So, so I think we have to have that awareness and, and really create an environment where kids are open sharing these emotions. And there's no way you can curate a perfect you know, parental experience. I know I drive back and I'm like, why did I say that? Or why I'm always kind of <laughs> kicking myself for right. overreacting to situations. But, but then I come back. I apologize. We have an open discussion and things are okay. I think... That's sort of what we need to bring in. I know it's a long answer. It's a complex topic. No, but, but I really, really, yeah. really liked that roses and thorn idea. I think that's great because I think if they think they can feel comfortable with us talking about yes. our issues, yeah. I think they will feel more compelled to talk about what they are experiencing. Right, right. And so okay. I really like that idea. Right. And uh, <laughs> so that was yeah. really helpful. But and uh, it's the whole concept of lead by example. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. True. Like yep. because uh, yeah. I have uh, because my. Two, two of my kids are so extremely like they're so different to each other yes. and so that always happens what you mentioned that yeah. your, your brain automatically tries to compare right, right. and you have to kind of hold back yes and yeah. so I have to do that constantly yeah. I'll see yeah. her getting her grades and she's like yeah. a straight-a student and I'll see him he has to try harder and yeah. everything and he doesn't want to do homework I have yeah. to tell him to do things and so I guess it's um, so I wanted to actually ask a question that what do you think for kids at that age because my yeah. my kids are in elementary school yeah but I can see health issues at that level. And so what do you think would be, like I've seen kids 
who completely either have a mental mental breakdown oh, yeah. or they are one kid I remember in the class I remember the lady who we met in the last event she said that this kid just got up and said I don't want to celebrate Diwali and he was having an identity crisis right oh, in the God. middle yeah. so what would be your advice what do you think is the biggest threat and then what would you think is it's the great tough. advice you know my wife being a pediatrician when she was practicing first she was in Fremont and she used to joke with me that when I'd see a kid walk in the room I could already identify which school they're going to I'm not going to mention any names but, <laughs> but she could just tell by just feeling the stress some of them were like they had their backpacks on they're trying to do schoolwork. they're like eight years old in the exam room trying to catch up so yeah. it's just palpable and 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 yeah the, the, the shocking thing for both of us is is we'd sit at the dinner table and sometimes I'd talk about medical cases she's like talking about adult conditions happening in her pediatric patients so um, so a lot of these conditions like fatty liver high triglycerides prediabetes adult onset diabetes they're happening in young Indian kids we're seeing it all the time when we're talking about women's health and pregnancy there's a condition that I've written quite a bit about called polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS mm-hmm. a lot of young girls have this condition and you know you know acne missed periods early signs of insulin resistance in, in teenage or girls in their 20s a lot of this was missed in women when they were younger because there was no awareness around it and these girls were teased because they had acne they were overweight um, they had some facial hair too but actually that was a warning sign that because of diet and lifestyle their bodies already not responding to insulin properly and their future risk of diabetes gestational diabetes heart disease is much higher so, so, you know, I hate using scare tactics, but sometimes when parents and families or my wife and I do these seminars, we have to sort of tell them like it is, you know, just like we talked about in the beginning, heart disease happening in 30s. It's happening decades earlier because of these sorts of habits. So, so you know, as a parent, it's tough because we get caught up in the rat race. You know, you hear yeah. parents talking about this and we're like, why shouldn't we be signing up for that summer entrepreneur camp or whatever, you know? <laughs> so it's really, but you have to see, and I tell people, take advantage of these resources. But if on a daily basis you're finding as a family that you don't have time to even make a meal for your family, that your kid's consistently going to bed late every single night. That's going to happen every now and then. But if that's a consistent pattern, then everybody in the family has to step back and say, you know what, we're cutting out of soccer or, you know, this is not working out. We need to reset as a family and really, because that's really, it takes a lot of discipline to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's really a key thing that we need to look towards. So, and yeah. it's also for nutrition, because as Kritika was mentioning, it's not just for women and, and adults, for kids' nutrition. The oh, culture huge. thing is such a big deal yeah. because we have two different ideas of what is nutritious for kids oh yeah as, as a south asian i'll oh, yeah. hear from my parents like oh no feed your kid parantas every day yes exactly. and that will right. make him gain weight because yeah. he's really underweight and then yeah. you and then you look at the books and you're like no 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 there's a healthier way to make right. him gain weight yeah maybe give him more protein exactly. maybe add more beans to his diet and you know yeah. more um, carbs but then not more carbs and then yeah. my and then you so you have this you're cultural fighting yeah you're fighting this yeah. and especially if you live in a joint family situation you're constantly fighting that stereotype so I actually want to go back to women's health for a second one other thing that I want to get your opinion on is um I feel like a lot of women don't invest in their personal health like going to a gynecologist on a regular basis um I felt like culturally for instance my mom never told me I was supposed to go to a gynecologist Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I found out once I finished college and I was working and I was talking to my friends and they were like oh I have to go for my regular checkup and that's when I found out oh I'm supposed to do this like I'm supposed to go for my regular checkup and from there I found out a lot of Indian women go through this where they're just not informed that at some point in their teenage years they're supposed to start taking care of themselves in a different way yeah so how do like how do we even begin to start educating women that it's okay it has nothing to do with sex it has everything to do with just your health 
Yeah, yeah. it's a great point. Overall, um, women have a tendency to not do health screenings, and you bring gynecologic ones, and obviously there's a sensitive age where you know parents put all this pressure, and again, it has to come back down to parental education, and hopefully healthcare providers can insist on that. Um, unfortunately, again, taking the Indian example, like patients hardly get screenings there at all. It's just not part mm-hmm. of the DNA of how the, how the healthcare system is designed. So in the meantime, you know, a lot of us that live here, you know, often we have families that have to sort of reach out to their cousins and things and sort of make them aware. So it's sort of just by spreading. But I think in the big cities, more awareness is developing around that, mm-hmm. but it's still an uphill battle. But the second part of that I want to mention is even a lot of my women that are getting care, they're only getting gynecologic care, but they're not actually getting general primary care. And this is really important. And literally, I, I just clogged on heart disease in women. So, so one thing is heart disease is still the number one cause of death in women, and it causes more death than all female cancers combined. Actually, all cancers combined. It's seven times wow. more likely to kill wow. a woman than, heart, um, than breast cancer. But, um, but a lot of women aren't aware of that. So even though they're getting their pap smears and their breast exam, which are cancer screenings, they don't know the last time they got a cholesterol check done or their blood pressure and things like that. So, and, and especially, I think in the West now, there's a little bit of that awareness, but Indians in particular still think of heart disease being a men's disease. Mm-hmm. And, and actually before menopause, interestingly, so men do develop heart disease at a higher rate than women before menopause. After menopause, they sort of become equal. But now what we're seeing is if you develop diabetes or heart disease risk factors before menopause, those women have a pretty similar risk. And I am seeing, I'm not seeing great amounts, but I've seen premature heart disease in women in their early 40s. And I, I never used to see that before, but I'm starting to see the first signs of that. So so, so you're right, the, the gynecologic, starting from a young age, we have to build that in the DNA of women that they need to take care of their health. And, and then the, the heart disease message, it has to be spread to both sides. And it's interesting because I, I just wrote on this and did a radio show last week, and today a news headline came out. And the study was basically women are more likely to call 911 for their husbands and male family members, but not for themselves. Because many of them, number one, women develop much more subtle symptoms, but also women are, they're so overwhelmed. They're they're like feeling tired and short of breath, and they have a lot of these symptoms all the time, so they can't even tell the difference between a heart attack, and it's just not on their radar screen, because they don't think of it as being a woman's problem. What should they look for? So So women compared to men tend to have less chest pain. So chest pain, the typical crushing chest pain you see in movies doesn't happen in women as much. What they tend to have are things like maybe some stomach upset, maybe shoulder or, or, or jaw pain. They tend to have progressive fatigue, just tiredness. That's why this is so tricky. What woman doesn't feel tired, right? Yeah. But, but I'm feeling like, like, tired right, right, now. right now. Let's get you to the hospital. <laughs> but, but, you know, so, so one woman that I outlined in my post was she had issues with tiredness, but she noticed that the tiredness was kind of out of, even though she was getting decent sleep, her tiredness was out of control. So it took her about three days to realize because she went to her typical exercise class and she couldn't keep up. And that was unusual. So then she still didn't go to the ER. She went to see her doctor. Then the doctor said, um, let's get an EKG. They got the EKG. So this was three days later. Oh. Now, the problem for women is when they get heart disease, they present much later to the emergency room than men. Because men typically, they're like, oh my gosh, I got to go. And the thing is, the longer it takes you to get to the ER, the more damage there is to the heart muscle. So women tend to present later, which means they end up having a more massive heart attack where they may not survive. So so their awareness needs to be expanded, especially in that case. So, yeah. Yeah. They have a higher threshold for pain. So yeah, that's true. A... We're kind of what's this compared to you guys? Yeah, <laughs> with, yeah, with childbirth and all that stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was going to yeah. say, yes, we do. We, I, I didn't yeah. go to the uh, – I, I went to the doctor. I remember when she said that, what are your numbers? Are you, are you yeah. looking at them? And I didn't. I'm like, uh, should I be? She's like, well, if yeah. you are taking medicines, 
audience, you probably should monitor your numbers. So I did. And I had consistently a really high range. And then she, then she had to, you know, increase the the dosage. And she's like, do you want to have a stroke? Because that's where you're heading. So that's the thing. Like it's, it's sometimes because we're so used to uh, that, the pain, the fatigue, all the the, the symptoms that you just don't, your mind doesn't go to the point that, oh, this may be a bigger issue than you feel. So I think it's important that, that, People should know that if yeah. for women, it's not as acute as yeah. men. So, and, you know, yeah, to me, it's sad that what you guys are outlining is like for most women, it's almost normal to feel to be in pain and feel mm-hmm. fatigue all Absolutely. the time. That's a, that's a problem. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's how women weren't really expected is. to feel like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, every, and uh, I'm not saying that our ancestors, our female ancestors, had it easy. For no way, I want to look my grandmother's life and things. But but there were long periods of time that they rested. They had a lot of family support, and yeah. they rested. They got proper sleep. They always did their morning rituals. So. But but in today's South Asian women, man, that's all out the window. It's just completely... I think it, again, goes back yeah. to the fact that you're bridging two cultures. There's a collective culture, and then there's an individualistic culture, right? Yeah. So you still have the pressures of the collective culture yeah. of, um, my mother-in-law expects this, right. my yeah. father-in-law expects this, Very my tough. parents expect this, yeah. and I want to please them because yeah. it's been ingrained in your head. The yeah. fact that you're not a male child, yeah. you're a female child, you have right. a lot more things that you need to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're in this individualistic culture where you're like, oh, well, I want to do something for myself. Sure. Yeah. I want to achieve yeah. I want to have a career. Right, right. And then you take all of that. Yeah. And then you just exist in this constant state of just stress and anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> and I think oh that's where you don't recognize you're having a heart attack. <laughs> <back. laughs> <laughs> I'm getting stressed just thinking about it. Um, <laughs> right, so, yeah. Well, that's yeah. actually all yeah. the questions that we had for you. Yeah. But in closing notes, please tell us where users can find you, your blog, your website, your Instagram, Twitter. Yeah, so so most people have found me through the book, but I know with today's busy folks that it's hard to sort of consume a book and get all this information. So finding me through the internet is the easiest way. If you go to culturalhealthsolutions.com, there's a media tab there. And I've got some one-hour talks where at a high level, I use diagrams and talk about this all together. And many of my patients have shared that with family members, the family members that don't want to listen. I don't know if it had any effect, but, but at least they're able to share some of that. But I think my blog is probably the easiest place to go to find all the information you need. And then I've got some programs, online programs there as well, too, for people that want to get some deeper learning. So, And you can reach out to me through the email. I actually do answer all my emails that come through. There's an email icon on the blog, so if any questions come up, don't send me, I had a couple of questions where I'm having chest pain and don't send me questions <laughs> like that. Talk to your doctor about those. But no, I'm happy to help people find resources. That's so, great. Yeah. Well, Dr. Sanna, thank you so much for giving us your time. Sure. We really appreciated this. And I think that we got a lot of it, out of it. Our users will get a lot out of it. And I'm definitely going to call my mom and be like, I need you to listen to this episode. So <laughs> yes. I'm really excited about great. this. Well, yes. thanks for the work you thank guys you. are doing. This is a, a much needed area to have conversations like this. So thank, thank you. you. Thank All you right. very much.